everybody, and welcome to the very first edition of our Good Folk podcast. For those of you who do not know me, I am Spencer George, the person behind all the newsletters, if you have been subscribed to us for a while. And if you have not and you are brand new here, then welcome. We're so excited to kick off our very first podcast episode as we kind of enter into this new era of Good Folk and all the exciting things we have upcoming. A huge part of that is a new podcast where we will be having conversations with some really amazing individuals um, and humans working in, around, and across um, rural communities in the American South, kind of bringing light to some of these conversations and offering a platform for some people that we think do really amazing work. I am saying we, and I am very excited to introduce you all today to our newest member of the Good Folk team, someone who has been incredibly important and influential throughout this entire process of launching Good Folk over the last year, and very, very important to this new rebranding and new era, (laughs) and that is Victoria Landers, who is going to be coming in as our new head of media and design here at Good Folk. So I will get a chance to have Victoria talk a little bit for themselves in just a minute. Um, But I am so excited to introduce them here today to have them as a part of the team. And we're going to have a really awesome conversation um, about rural artistry and home and identity and all of the very important things um, that both of us feel very strongly about. So let me go ahead and read you Victoria's very impressive bio, and then I'm going to turn it over to them to introduce themselves. Victoria Landers graduated with a BFA in studio art with a concentration in photography at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro in July of 2020. She is currently based in Moore County, North Carolina, working in local nonprofits by day and expanding their art by night. Photographers Andy DeLuca and Lu Hui influenced Victoria to focus on the theme of the relationship one has with themselves and the world around them. Since the unexpected move back to her hometown due to COVID, Victoria's world has shifted to include the stories, people, and environments tied to Southern living. She learns to find the beauty in the backroads that raised her. In today's society, young people are pushed to mature fast and encouraged to stay in the familiarity of life. Therefore, she strives for her work to allow people to slow down and pay homage to the emotions that rule the heart. For those of you who know me and have been following my work through Good Folk, you will know that our ultimate goals are very, very aligned here. I am a writer um, and folklorist by practice. I'm also very interested, obviously, in how we can better tell the stories of the South. Um, I am so lucky to call Victoria a dear friend and coworker of mine and to have her as a part of this team. Um, A little bit of context as to how we met is that, as many of you know, I've been working in the arts education space for the last few years, teaching creative writing um, in rural schools down here in North Carolina. Uh, The program that I've been working for, originally I was placed alone in a school, which was an experience for another day. (laughs) And in January of last year, I was told I was going to be getting a co-fellow and co-collaborator. Initially, I thought to myself, I do not work super well with others. I've I've kind of carved my own path here. I know what I'm doing. Who Who are they sending me? Um, And everybody told me, they said, well, don't be so stressed. What if they turn out to be your best friend? And thankfully, they were all very right. And Victoria came in and has has done an amazing job and still works at that school, whereas I'm now at a different school. Um, I dearly miss collaborating with them and getting to see Victoria on the daily. I know she's going to do so many amazing things in life and here for Good Folk. And we are just so lucky um, to have her as a part of this team. I'm going to turn it over to Victoria now to introduce themselves, add a little bit more, give a little bit of context, and then we're going to dive into this very special, very important conversation. 
Yes, thank you. I'm excited. Um, I mean, you've kind of hit all like the big bullet points, but I moved to Moore County when I was very young. I'm originally from Colorado. Um, and my parents are both from the North. So it is a very, when I first moved here, it was all very new and unnatural and, uh, a little scary for everyone involved. My mother was very upset with my father, um, when she had to see that all surrounding us was just pine trees and, um, sand and she's from Connecticut and she used to visit New York city often. So it was a very big change of pace from her, um, and we just moved from Denver, which is also kind of a, a city of its own. So it took a while to really fall in love with where I am. And it literally took 20 years. So, but I'm here now and I love it. She's great. She's fun. She's funky. We love Moore County. Yeah. Um, For those of you who are not aware of North Carolina geography as well, um, yes. Moore County is a pretty large county about an hour south of the Raleigh-Durham Triangle. Mm-hmm. Um and Victoria, one thing I would love to have you touch on, one one thing that we both found working in Moore County is there are two very different sides. Um, like most rural communities, yeah. there's yeah. a much more kind of well, all very rural um, and small town, but generally there are these kind of, especially here in North Carolina, in our counties, we have 80 out of 100 of North Carolina counties are rural. Of those, a good portion have very, very nice rural areas that are the very much like Hallmark movie, small town kind of feel. And then some kind of more, I don't want to say stereotypical, but more what you would expect of rural areas that are um, a little bit smaller. They tend to get less resources. Working in schools was very interesting because we would notice um, the resources that would go to our peers who worked in these kind of more affluent rural Mm -hmm. areas versus we worked in the part of the county that was pretty far out. So I was wondering if you could touch on that um, a little bit just for our listeners and talk about that difference in rural communities. Because one thing that I feel that I bring up a lot um, when I talk to people about the South and about rural communities, and and we try to be as careful as possible about this with good folk, but, you know, the rural South is not a monolith, right? Um, Mm -hmm. My college thesis was titled All These Rural Places. And I I stole that from a line that I said, you know, it could be Arkansas or Oklahoma or Georgia or North Carolina, right? They're all the same in the minds of like the American media, you know, all of these rural places could be any of them, you know, they're just irreplaceable. And we leave out the um, unique diversity and independence. You know, they're all very, very different. And each rural town, we can't just treat it like a monolith um, and use the word rural as just this like monolithic placeholder because there's a lot of nuance. Um, so I was hoping you could touch on that just as you're talking about your journey in Moore County. And then I definitely want to get into home. We're, we're going to have a lot to say, both of us, about <laughs> that, I think. <laughs> yeah, for sure. No, I grew up very fortunate. Um, where I went to all Christian-based private schools for a majority of my life. So, you know, with private schools, you have to pay money. So if you don't have money, you don't get to really go to these, Um, which was something that I took for granted for and never really thought of, I, um, especially in my younger days. Um, And then it really hit me in high school. That was the first time I went to a private um, schooling system that wasn't Christian based, but it had a lot of Christian ties to it. Um, but it wasn't affiliated with anything. And that's kind of when my eyes opened. It was like, oh, I am getting a, like definitely a leg up than a lot of other people and students and young people um, in my county. Um, we uh, are really, we are next door, pretty or down the road from a very, very um, big public high school. And 
I'm trying to think of how to say this. It it felt wrong to end up going to O'Neill. That was the high school I went to. Of when you kind of put all these pieces together and see, I had classmates that would were able to fly to Coachella for a weekend and then come back and take their exams. And that's just what I grew up with, and that's what I thought life was like. Um, and then finding out that it wasn't, and then a lot of people, you know, had food insecurity, money insecurity, and all this other stuff. It felt very wrong to be a part of that elitism. And then living in that type of ruler setting, like the more elite side of it. And then quite literally across the train tracks is like, you know, the bad side of town and having to unlearn all those stereotypes that I grew up with um, as I continued through high school and as I went to college and now working in one of the quote unquote stereotypical farmland rule places, I very much had to unlearn a lot of prejudices. Wow. How do I say the word? Prejudices. 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 Yep. Yes. Prejudice. Yep. <laughs> it's been a long week. Um, I had to learn like a lot of like um, preconceived notions essentially. Um, so, and I am, you know, still unlearning them to this very day. And I think I probably always will be, but I am very thankful for being able to grow up um, having the privileges that I have, but I don't take them for granted. Um and the my students that I work with, they have very much influenced a lot of the work and things that I study now. Um, so yeah, I just try to bridge. My main thing that I try to do in Robbins is bridge the resources that I grew up with and giving it to the people that don't have access to it um, because it makes me angry. But that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> yeah. One thing that I think comes up a lot, um, especially in kind of the field of rural education is this idea that so many teachers in rural schools are people who yeah. grew up in those communities. Um, mm-hmm. And you feel this kind of obligation to, to go back and to give something back. And I've thought about that a lot. I certainly, I grew up um, across North and South Carolina and uh, across a mix of public and private schools, um, graduated from a pretty top high school in South Carolina, um, mm-hmm. did not ever think that I would come back moved yeah. to New York City for college and found what, what what was crazy to me is even the difference between like Southern private schools and then this elitism in other places where it was like, mm-hmm. yes. And in the community I grew up in, I was still kind of at the top. Right. And then you, you get somewhere. And I remember I would be sitting in classes um, and I did have the privilege to go to quite a fancy school and, and study something I really loved, which just like you, you know, I, I don't take that for granted. I want to be able to do something with that um, and do something that feels important and meaningful. But Mm-hmm. I remember sitting in classes and being like, oh, okay, so what What was even good, like, where I come from? I mean, that that's nothing here. Like, comparatively, when you think about some of these major big cities, it, it's it, – there's, like, so many different levels to it um, mm-hmm. that is fascinating to me. And, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of people in some of the settings that I've worked with, and it's, you know, when you have those kind of privileges and opportunities – you do have an obligation to do something with them. I think I, I don't think I would ever feel okay with myself. You know, my mom was the first person in my family to get a degree and go to college. So then for me to even like, not even have that as like an expectation, but just a thing of like, Oh yeah, like, of course I'll go to college was such yeah. a big deal in my family. Right. And then for my mom to go and be the first one to even leave North Carolina to then me growing up in the Carolinas and feeling like, okay, well, what did she do all this work for? if I'm just going to come back, um, which I, I love what you were talking about, about unlearning. And I want to get into that in just a second. But I think 
something I have dealt with a lot in the process of coming back here is unlearning these narratives that we tell ourselves. You know, here at Good Folk, we are all about stories and <laughs> why the stories we tell ourselves matter and how they matter. And one thing that I had is it's like, okay, you have these kind of privileges coming through your family down the line. Um, you know, you're getting that period of like upward trajectory. What was mm-hmm. all of this work from my mom for if I'm just going to stay? Um, yeah. And unlearning that, we're realizing like my mom has wanted me to come back South my whole life. Like she never even wanted me to leave. So who's the person telling this story of like, oh, if you're going to have a valuable life, you have to get out. Um, and even coming mm-hmm. back and, you know, both of us graduated college kind of into the pandemic. And I don't think either of us necessarily, I think we would have come back, but maybe not quite as soon had it not happened the way that it did. And um, yeah. at least for me, been- I feel like our own choice instead of like a forced yes. choice. Essentially. Yeah. I, I knew I wanted to come back South as soon as I left almost immediately. And I just, I didn't have a plan for how that was going to happen because I still had that thing of like, Oh, I'm a failure. If I come back, like I went and I, I, you know, I got this, I got into this really tough school and I graduated with like a triple degree and honors <laughs> and I worked full time in college and I was doing all this stuff. And like, what did I do all that for? If it's mm-hmm. just to like come back. And Mm -hmm. that's so sad because there's so much value and there's so much um, importance and meaning in in going back to the communities that you grew up in and really giving something back in a way that, you know, is not just transient, right? It's not like, oh, I'm going to come back here for two years and like help out and then I'm going to leave and like go back to New York. Like, Mm -hmm. at least for me, like I'm back here for good. Like I'm putting, I'm putting some pretty deep roots down and I I have no desire to really like go anywhere else, Um, which is beautiful. But, and and I'm rambling now, but this... (laughs) This pressure of like, you have to have a way to get out if you're going to have a meaningful life. And even if you like come back, there's still something that doesn't sit right a lot with a lot of people. And and who's telling us those stories? Because in my mind, I'm the only one telling that story to myself. Yeah. Um, like people might question, you know, why would you leave like a great job in New York to go work in like rural schools in North Carolina? But at the end of the day, like the only one who's putting judgment on that is myself. So I, I don't know if you've also felt that pressure um, or even just that specific yeah. pressure to leave. I know I see that in my students. I'll ask them, be like, what's your biggest dream? And they're like, to leave North Carolina. And I try yep. to communicate to them, you know, you can leave, but you can always come back. Like, it doesn't have to be mm-hmm. so um, this period of abandonment, right? You don't have to leave behind everything you know in order to make something of yourself. Um And and this is the last thing I'll say very quickly about it, but we are surrounded by pine forest here. Pine trees are very much a part of North Carolina. And a saying that a friend of mine always told me is, you know, you want to be like the pine tree, right? They're stable and they're strong and yet they're able to move in the wind. And um, the pine trees have played a huge huge influence in the novel that I'm currently pitching. And I've been thinking about this idea that where we live, we have specific types of pine trees that can spin out like 60 feet in diameter, but their roots can stay strong. So I tell that to my students of, you know, be like the pines, right? You can spin out, you can leave, but just know that you have roots and you, and you can come back to them. Um, and it's okay. There's no shame in that. There's actually a type of beauty. So I don't know <laughs> if you have thoughts on any of that or anything that you would kind of like to add to my, oh my, to my very long yes. ramble here. <laughs> You're allowed. When it first snowed here, I was very excited because snow was familiar. Snow reminded me of home. And then went to bed, pulled out my snowsuit from the boxes that we were still unpacking, woke up the next morning, was all excited uh, to go outside and play. And it was 
one already melting and two it was just dandruff it was like barely any white on the ground and i was devastated and i was like i need to leave this town immediately but i was seven so i had a ways to go um but ever since that young age that that like moment planted in like my heart and soul i was like i cannot stay here i need to leave this is not for me uh me every time i get in snow where i'm like i (laughs) i grew up at the beach right like i'm not cut out the snow opposite reaction yeah the things (laughs) the things that feel like home that we associate it with right like i Mm -hmm. need to be in a forest like i need to be able to touch some grass or i will lose my mind and that's that's your snow you know and everyone has that that kind of memory and feeling of home yeah so it that was like something that i lived with forever in a while. And um, it wasn't really until three years ago that I was like, oh, this is fine. I can live with this. Uh, But the woman in high school that kind of, I think, unintentionally made me want to leave was kind of also the one that changed my life. Her name was Beth Garrison. She was my high school art teacher. Um, And Miss G really kind of planted the bug of art can be something that you can live for and do. Um, it doesn't have to be a hobby. Uh, this can be like something you can be successful in. I was like, oh, okay. Um, and she has a, a crazy cool story where she left her hometown and she went to New York and was one of the interns for Andy Warhol um, when he was in New York. Um, and then she also studied in Japan with a tea maker and a pottery maker And she spent months just perfecting, you know, how to make pottery on the wheel and specifically teapots. And then when she mastered that, she then went to Italy and became like a ballerina. She like shaved her head um, and had this whole like euphoric, like human arts, you know. uh, Experience. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That's what I was looking for. And I was like, oh, my gosh, Miss G, I want to be you. And then she moved back here and she started a family and then she became an art teacher at O'Neill. And she's been there ever since. And I was like. Why did you why did you come back? Are you insane? Um and I looked up to her so deeply and like from her story I was like okay so if I need to be anything or anyone I have to get out of here and I have to go to a big hub. So whether that's New York, LA, Nashville or somewhere overseas where there's an art scene I was like it's not more county and it never will be. Um mm-hmm. and I just kind of cruised through my school years until it was time for me to leave and go to college. And then my parents said, but you have to go to school in state. Otherwise, you're paying it all by yourself. And I was like, I don't have a job. So there's no way that I can pay for it. Um, So I guess I'm going to school in state. And I was very, very, very upset because I had my heart set on SCAD. Um, That's where I wanted to go. That's where I felt like my future belonged in. Uh, And that was not it. I was like, (laughs) cool. But uh, I went to UNCG and that – experience was fabulous i love that school um i worked in their housing programs for two years i loved being an ra i loved the students i was in charge of i loved the connections in the community i made in the art studio uh because i graduated with a bfa uh in visual arts but with a concentration in photography in the photography classes that i took and those students i talk to them still to this day like i love them to death in pieces um and they a lot of them are from the South or have heavy connections to the South. They kind of planted that seed that, hey, maybe maybe North Carolina isn't like the worst. Um, <laughs> but it wasn't until I joined Artist Year uh, 
and then meeting other artists that weren't just photographers and seeing people and their artistry um, and what they were doing and where they came from. That's what like really changed kind of my perspective of, you know, what is home. And now I associate, you know, pine trees and pine cones, which I have a deep fear of. And however much I see them, I still associate them, you know, being home. So that was kind of like a weird roundabout answer, but that, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Would you say that North Carolina feels like home to you now? Yeah. No, a hundred percent. I long-term when I live and die, I hope to live, uh, die in a cabin in Asheville. That is like my dream goal. It was like, if anything, that's where I need to go. Um, and five years ago, that would not have even been close to the answer. Um, and I had a conversation with my mom a couple weeks back. We were sitting out on my porch. Um, it was just like after one of those like early spring thunderstorms. And my mom just turned to me and she's like, what changed? Like what what happened? I was like, what do you mean? She was like, in high school and in the beginning of college, you were convinced to get out of here and go to a big city and just like work you know, high-end magazine, fashion, photographer, whatever. She's like, now you want to lay roots here. And she's like, which I'm not complaining at all. She goes, to be selfish, I want you here. But all of a sudden, now you're going hiking and now you own an Inu. (laughs) Now you're doing all these things. I was the first – I took Victoria on their first real hike. (laughs) I I claim that. Um, That is my my influence, you know. If you become my friend, I will drag you – on a trail and to a river and that's yes. that's about what I can promise, you know. Yes. So come be my friend. Yeah, if you live in North Carolina, come hang out. With me. Yeah, no, but that trip to the mountains. Um and like that trip to Hot Springs specifically, like that really solidified of like this is where I belong. Um this is home. And mm-hmm. now I wouldn't change it for anything. But I don't know what specifically like changed. I don't think there was a moment in my time where I was like, ah, I've been looking at it all wrong. Um, It's, I don't know what changed. I think it was just lots of little things in people and just like hearing their stories. And um, I think a lot of it also has to do with my students and how they interact with the town and seeing that tight kit, tight knit community that I don't think I ever really took advantage of. Um, And just seeing them live and thrive and kind of be who they want to be. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Shit. One thing that I've been doing this wrong. Yeah. One thing I've been thinking about the whole time you've been talking, um, and something that I feel is both very important to me personally and also like a very important kind of goal of this entire newsletter and project is Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. this idea of representation, right? Because it's so interesting to me. You know, you're talking about your teacher and you know, the part that you're so focused on was her leaving rather than the part of her coming back, right? And it's like this idea of that representation of like, oh, if I want a life like that you know, I'm going to have to get out, right? And not like mm-hmm. I can get out and I can still come back because I, I know for a fact I felt the same way, you know, growing mm-hmm. up, I wanted to be a writer since I was five or six years old. And so the mm-hmm. two stories I told myself were like, number one, I, I'm not going to do that here, which is hilarious when I think back on it because I'm, I'm now getting a master's degree and like studying Southern narratives and Southern literature. And I'm like, there are so many writers here. And like, why was I not clued into those? You know, I was idolizing 
like Kerouac and Ginsburg. And then the other narrative I told myself about being an artist is like, I can't have a happy, stable life, right? Like Mm -hmm. I'm not going to have any meaningful connections. I'm not going to have like, like I'll probably be dead by 30, but at least I'll make great (laughs) art. Like at least my art will like outlive me. And I feel like so much of this in coming back to study rural artistry is looking at narratives of like happiness and recovery because Mm -hmm. artistry in a rural community is very different than it is in a big city. I'm very interested as as a writer in the way that like writing does we see it as so much of a solitary practice and what I'm interested yeah. in in terms of storytelling work and in terms of this project is how can we make storytelling a communal practice again right because mm-hmm. if you look throughout history storytelling has never been so isolated it has always been about that bridge and that community um we just don't get to see that very often so I'm trying to now think about being the representation for that but also in terms of like so much of what I, I think has helped tie me back is finding artists and writers and filmmakers and people who are doing the kind of work that I want to do and living the kind of life that I want to live and doing it in the places where they're from. Like blew my mind when when I realized, oh, you mean I don't have to like leave behind everything I know to have this kind of career that I want? I can do that here. And, you know, this is the whole point of this project is like people have been doing that here for forever we just don't tell those stories and um in terms of representation i know you know you and i both identify as queer people Mm -hmm. and that's become such an important thing for me too of like i also felt when i started figuring this all out in high school and college like oh yeah i'm i'm not a straight person like and i there's no way i could live my life as that and like be my full self as an artist and as a human and in terms of my identity and do it in the place that i'm from and um the more research I do into that, you know, I've got some pieces coming out over the next few months delving into this very topic, but it's like the South has 35% of the LGBT population in this country. And yet, I mean, I can count on one hand, like the Southern queer stories I've really gotten to read, much less, I don't even think I've really ever seen one on the screen. Mm-hmm. So we're going very wrong, or, or not, we're, I think we are starting to go very right with where we're going with this storytelling. But the more we speak up and the more we share these stories, the more we can improve that representation. And I, I see that with my students where, you know, just like you were talking about, it's like so many of my students are young and they're queer and they want to be artists and they're like really living their truth. And, you know, I like to think that I can be a person to them that if I had had someone like me 10 years ago, I think I would have gone a very different path, right? Just to see Mm -hmm. that possibility. And, um, you know, it's not just us doing that. Obviously there are so many people, but it, it takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of bravery to come back and to not only come back, but but to come back and not just like assimilate into the person you might have been in, you know, middle or high school, but to come back and really, really be the person that you are now. Um, it's not always easy. And I think when I think about Southern narratives of kind of resistance and rurality and queerness, like it is so important and and very radical in a way mm-hmm. to show up who you fully are in I think that's where we're seeing this new shift into kind of the South and rural places of people are starting to wake up and realize like, this is, there's a ton of value here, right? It is not just this monolith of like conservatism and racism and homophobia. And while yes, of course those things exist here, they exist in so many other places too. And we we need to do the work nationally. We can't just take everybody in liberal cities and kind of throw the blame on one region of the country, right? There's all of those problems still in New York City. 
end. If we don't learn how to unite and work together and be that representation and tell those stories and create Mm -hmm. space to tell those stories, we are never going to get anywhere in this country. And I I think often about um, like ancient civilizations when they were kind of collapsing and falling apart. And the thing that got them through that was these stories and these myths. Um, And I think we're witnessing a, a very particular moment in American society right now where we're losing all of the myths and the stories that we've told about ourselves. And we're, we're kind of trying to figure out what's going to replace them. There's two very different camps going at that right now. Um, but I like to think that, you know, I, I don't even like to think, I have to believe that we are going to start getting these new narratives and we are going to start telling these stories and there's going to be space for that. And, and I, I want to be part of that. We're going to be part of that. Um, That's what we're doing here. That's what we want to do. And we want to enable and create space and value in these stories. Because just like I said, you know, at the very beginning, rural areas in the rural South is not a monolith. You're going to get a very different story from someone in, you know, Western North Carolina in the mountains than you would as you kind of get out to the coastal plains. And that's Mm -hmm. just in one state. And we need to start valuing those stories independently um, and allowing space for that representation in order to create real change, I think. Yeah. And then I think that's something that I never realized when I was younger is like a lot of the people that um, I wish I had when I was younger were already there. I just didn't have the resources or the knowledge to know where to look or that they even existed. Like people have been doing this work forever, but because, you know, of where they were located um, and their identity, they just weren't deemed as a, someone who got their own soapbox kind of thing. Yeah. Like they it's not soap- that no, it's not that any of this is new or that like we're the first people to take this on, right? So many yeah. thousands of people throughout history have been doing this. It's just that mm-hmm. we as a society have not valued those stories. And um that I mean that's the entire point of this project and this newsletter is that it's like we didn't have those I, I'm I'm with you. I didn't have awareness of the people who were living these lives and doing these work and, and they've always existed. So what we hope that we can do as we kind of bring you all this podcast and this newsletter is like really create a space um to show that this is happening and this is real. And you know, yeah. if the modern American media and like New York and LA is gonna tell those stories, we, we will. And and somehow, some way we will figure out a way to tell them. And and there's there's so much value in that and in representation. And I could go on and on and on about it. <laughs> I mean, it's like truly, I could talk for like hours about the importance yeah. of representation. Um, oh, it's so critically important. And that's something that I, you know, allowed myself, I guess, to do when I first started going into these schools. It was like, I want to show up as someone that I wish I had whether that was just a fat person or a queer person or an artist just existing and living their life unapologetically and sharing that part of myself with my students. Um, I mean, that's something I kind of made a promise to myself that I would do. Um, And then just having the students that would come to me and be like, oh, I came out to my parents last night or, oh, I decided I want to be, you know, a photographer when I grow up. Because I really love taking your club and all that stuff. Like that just kind of feeds my little my little soul and my little ego. Of <laughs> being like, oh, yes, <laughs> mission accomplished. Um, because like re- it's truly the bottom line. Representation is so incredibly important. And now that all of the, the queer content that is being made, um, 
I think it also has a great impact where it's not taboo or uh, a kill your gaze type of stereotype. Um, They're showing happy, loving, and realistic stories, I think. And I think that's also super important within that too. So now I want to bridge the worlds, you know, like, Mm -hmm. um, of like, and then also rural be like, great opportunities to come from here. Realistic opportunities, amazing stories. It's just, they're all there. They just don't have their own little microphone yet. Um, Yeah. There's an amazing project that I I support on Patreon. I recommend to like everybody I know called Country Queers. And um, we've linked it in Good Folk before. I can link it again. And it's run by Ray Geringer and a whole team of other people. Um, And, you know, they went around to rural areas. They they run like a whole community podcast and media project where they interview like queer people in rural communities. Mm -hmm. Because it is this idea that like, oh, I'm doing it alone. And that's really terrifying. But you're not. Because yeah. there are so many people and we, we just need to have better ways to tell those stories. But it's so hard. Um, but I, I think we're just slowly moving towards a better point with that. But but showing up in a way that is honest to yourself, it can be really difficult. And um, I would love mm-hmm. to get you, weigh, get you to weigh in on something I feel like I see a lot in the South. And I've written about this a little bit is this idea that while, yes, there are quite a few areas and communities that – you know, are still very rooted in what they believe to be tradition. You know, they're buying into these stories that they have told themselves for a very long time. A lot of those stories are very concerned with narratives of freedom. Um, And of all places, Mm -hmm. you know, I talk about this with my mom a lot. This is a region that values above anything else, I think, um, freedom in a way that I I think is very interesting when it comes to kind of topics of queerness where, you know, I've talked to a lot of people and it's like, you know, I don't support like the LGBT community, but you know, my grandson, he's gay. And so that's okay. Um, and I've had students come to me and they're like, you know, my parents are okay with me, but they're not okay with like this entire concept in general. And I think about that often in terms of like, all right, these stories that we tell ourselves, right? Like it's okay if it's someone that I know, but overall I disagree. Mm -hmm. And yet this is a region that so deeply values like that idea of freedom. And and I think that plays into it somehow that like it has to, because there is this freedom of like, well, I'm going to disagree with the government and, you know, I'm going to live out of my land and I'm going to have my guns, but that also can extend to love, right? Like, you know, well, maybe mm-hmm. I disagree with Bobby, but he's doing his thing and I, it's not my place to judge. Right. But, you know, within that in the South, we still have this underlying idea of like the church and religion. And that is, you know, even if you're not religious, it is ever present as a force here. Um, and there are stories within that too. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think it just all comes back to storytelling, but I would love to have you kind of weigh in on what do you think about these kind of stories of like the old South versus like this idea of freedom and where, where do we draw the line with that? Right. Because in the South, you can't just say, Oh, it's freedom up until a point. Um, Mm-hmm. You feel like you see that? Yeah, I yes. <laughs> I mean, it's it's so complicated in a sense of the history of the South, um, and then it's and like, even okay. the way we teach it, right? I yes. learned the I learned the Civil War is the War of Northern Aggression. Like, just mm-hmm. to go back to stories again. The way we get history is through we stories. We were told very right? specific change, altered yeah, stories. That can change depending on where you're getting those stories from. Yeah. So I think the first thing in order to be 
truly honest and like tell the stories on an on an equal footing is to go back and be like, okay, well, first we have to realize that we aren't telling everyone's story. Um, because I think we want to tell everyone's story. We have to be honest and true within that. And, um, overall the South and especially the Southern education system has not been doing that. Um, so I think a lot of us, and then as, as a white person, I have to make sure that the stories that I'm telling are not stepping on other people's voices. Um, because, you know, that's something that I will always have to unlearn of being, you know, stereotypes and all that stuff. Um, yeah, like you don't want to do the stories that I remember I'm telling. Started, I'm giving. Yeah, go ahead. I remember when I started writing about the South, everyone would be like, "Oh, you're going to be like the new voice of the South," and I was like, "I don't want to." No, be. I'm not no. the voice of the South. Right? <laughs> Nasty. My voice has been here, and and what I would rather do with my work is really open up the space for new voices, or not even new voices, but open up the space for voices that have been telling these stories for years that just weren't having listeners. It's like, can you be yeah. that bridge between these things? Because yeah. it shouldn't be me, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's this woman that I just followed on TikTok and I'm blinking on her name, but I will find her. She and like her videos just started ramp- randomly popping up my 40 page. But um, she goes and finds historical um, slave burial sites. Um, and then she like has all these tail markers and stuff like this, of like how she knows what to look for. Um, and then she goes to the local government and make sure that it's protected by law. So like people can't dig up um, or disturb these sites. And then she tries to find people um, who might be living relatives of the slaves that died and tries to get them in connection if they want to put a plaque or something. And I think that's so like, I had no idea that like, it makes sense. And now that I'm hearing it, I was like, well, of course there's slave burial sites that people are just digging up because it's not protective because they're unmarked. Um, But I had no idea and like so stories and similar of those of like I think the internet is so, you know, as nasty and horrible as it is, it also has this great side of connecting people um and giving them a chance to have their story heard to people that would have never even thought to even bother looking or mm-hmm. would have never come in contact. You know, someone from up north could be hearing and seeing these videos, um, and vice versa. So I think it's the internet as much as she has been the problem has also helped I think in the sense of kind of trying to bridge that gap yeah anyone who knows me in real life knows that I hate the internet most of the time <laughs> but I do agree and um, one thing I feel like I've really enjoyed watching through like Twitter and TikTok and kind of the rise of those platforms is you know local journalism um, and like local journalists being able to claim their stories back in a way I think mm. you know if you talk to somebody about like Appalachia <laughs> they're gonna have this very much narrative of like, you know, you've got the crying mother and like the crumbling barn and everything's black and white and very sad and like coal dusted. And so much of that is, I think, because for so long we've had outsiders coming in to tell these stories, right? Like if a major national publication wants to run a story about the South, they're going to fly somebody in from like New York City and they're going to come down and they're going to photograph this community with an outsider's view. It's Mm -hmm. been very rare. Um, throughout history that we have had major publications employing local people. And I think we're starting to see that more and we're starting to see kind of the shift of local journalists and local news organizations really claiming that power back and saying, no, you know what? These are our stories. Yeah. We don't need you to come here and tell them, right? Like we want to tell them for ourselves. 
And Mm -hmm. that I think is really cool. And more and more, I'm like, why is it that we have like two or three major newspapers that are controlling the news that majority of us are getting, right? Like there's so few articles in the New York Times that are really talking about any of this. Um, And especially Mm -hmm. working in education throughout COVID, it's like I would read all these articles about COVID and, you know, they would talk about remote learning. And I know for both of us, we we never taught remote. Um, I started teaching in 2020 and not once did my school ever go remote. And not once did I ever see anybody talking about that. It was all about, oh, you know, here's how hard it is and here's the dangers of remote learning. I was like, what I want to see is a national news article about, you know, this is a whole region where I would say probably like 85% of our schools were operating in person the entire time. And and what did that look like, right? Like, I just had to accept, like, I'm going to get COVID to do this job. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm either going to get COVID or I'm going to have to quit my job. And the only people I saw who were telling those stories were local journalists and local newspapers. Yep. And I've even seen a lot about, you know, journalists who work in rural and Southern communities, you know, they'll pitch a piece in New York Times, it'll get picked up, they go on, they like publish, you know, they they sign a contract and then the story gets killed and they can't ever reach their contact again. Um, and, and so much of it is just, it. I it's so frustrating to watch. And I wish we like funded local journalism so much more and more people would pay attention because most of the time in terms of when we're talking about these stories shifting, it really is like individuals taking it into their own hands and saying, nope, you know what? I'm going to tell, I'm going to tell this story because it's my story and I don't yeah. want somebody else coming in to tell it. Yeah. And, and a huge part of, you know, when we're talking about kind of this good folk new era and relaunch, a huge portion of, we, we see ourselves as twofold, which is that number one, you know, we have, we have to be able to provide people with the tools and resources to kind of learn how to tell their stories, right? If you've mm-hmm. never gotten to attend a writing workshop or have any of the access to the arts, maybe that you would get in a major city, we mm-hmm. want to be the bridge to bring those tools um, and bring those workshops. But number two, you know, my experience, I've, I've worked in quite a few different media publications, quite a few different publishing organizations, and you can't just like take the stories if there's no one really to listen to them. That's almost worse. So it's twofold of, yes, we're going to create, you know, this new group of storytellers who feel confident and equipped and and understand their stories have value. But also we have to create like a platform and a space to archive and tell them because if they're Mm -hmm. just going out into the void and nobody's listening, you know, I think that's been the bigger problem is that it's not that like, just like we were talking about, it's not that people aren't already doing this work and already telling these stories. Mm -hmm. It's really just that people aren't listening. So the biggest portion of this work is like, okay, yeah. How do we get more people reading local news? How do we get more people like, buying books about the South, buying books about rurality, buying books about queerness, right? Coming back and wanting to work in rural schools. You know, you're going to get a lot more teachers who are very qualified wanting to go to urban schools than you are in rural schools. That's just a fact, right? How can we really create this platform and these tools and this space to not only get people to understand there's value in telling their stories, but that there's a world and an audience that like needs to hear them? Because this kind of, we need to hear we need to hear these stories. We have yeah. to like unlearn these biases and unlearn these stereotypes. And in my humble opinion, the best way that we can do that and do that kind of empathy work really is through storytelling. But that yeah. that means nothing if people aren't listening. Um, so if you are listening to this, we I just want to say you know we really appreciate you and we're on this journey with you. And um, please share this. You know please please encourage people to listen and to give value and give time and. 
the same way they would to some story in the New Yorker. You know, it's just as important no matter where it comes from. No, a hundred percent. I mean, I don't know what I'm going to say that's going to top any of that <laughs> because you just said everything that's so <laughs> true and honest. It's just like there's these people have been doing this job for years, and I'm thankful that I get to be a part, hopefully, of that group now of people who are trying to bring their stories forward and you know tell the honest story and the true story um, through I art form, which is visual arts. Um, and then connecting those other people. Because I'll tell people about like, you know, when I'm working on a project, uh, what I'm doing, like, oh, that's such a good idea. Like I, you know, I love that. Or my father, he was an artist or a potter or whatever, but he never got any recognition. And they, I met this amazing woman who was telling me about her father who was a potter. And um, he just made pots for his neighbors and the stuff and, you know, for friends and as gifts. Um, and uh, just his story was like really incredible. I was like, oh, that's what I want to learn about when I learn about art history. Like I want to hear about the people who have been doing this work, you know, in-house, um, like in my community and in my town. Like I, all the great historical figures, also amazing. But they're sometimes they're so hard to connect to. Um mm with like your artistry and theirs because there's such like a vast difference of like age or gender or time period and location. But I think hearing and seeing the artists that are happening now and doing in your community, I think is needed. And um, something that my professor from college, uh, Leah Sabzi, who's an amazing photographer, um, she encouraged all of us to keep a book of artists that influence our work and then try to really hone in on um, artists that are in our communities um, or we have connections to, whether it's through culture or gender or any of those things. And that's something I still continue to do after college, where every week I try to find an artist, if I haven't already found one, just through the internet or just through you know my feed um, and add it to the book. And uh, I have found so many people that now have influenced my art or have inspired me to do my art through that. Um, and then just like all my friends, like you're in the book. <laughs> I don't know if I told you that, but you're Much in the little appreciated. artist book. Yeah. Yeah. Along with all, you know, I have Wiley in there. I have um, Alexis Lawson, who hopefully we'll get on the podcast soon. Um, just all the people that have influenced me that I was like, I don't know. It's a pretty thick book. Yeah. Um, well, you get these little heroes. Soon that, well, that first edition will be closed and I'll be able to start another one. I'm excited. I feel like you, you get your little – I don't even want to say like local heroes because I have the same thing where it's like maybe not just kind of my core group of friends, although some of you are definitely on there, but like I have just the handful of like writers who, who are not massively famous and who are not like huge big deals who – you know, I'm like obsessed with behind the scenes, and I'm like, you, you yeah. never, you're, you're, you have no idea what you've done for me and for my work. And um, one thing I want to touch on with you too is this element of community in art yeah. and, and the way that can thrive in rural areas. Um, you know, Victoria and I both work for an organization that brings artists to rural communities. We we are both obviously from the south, but a lot of the people we work with are not. And one thing mm -hmm. that I, I always hear them say is they're like, I was so worried, you know, coming to a rural area that my art, like it wasn't going to have any opportunities. My art was going to suffer. And actually like, that's not true at all. And I know at least for me, you know, I, I felt very stagnant in my work when I was away from this region. Like, I think I really had to realize the things I'm most inspired by are 
what is around me and place and my mm-hmm. roots. And, you know, I work a lot in like modern Southern Gothicism and American <laughs> mythology. And all of that feels very, very tied to this region for me. And therefore, like my work could not thrive outside of it. Um, there's an author that I will, I will link this interview. Um, but I'm totally going to blank on her name right now, but she has a <laughs> quote where she talked about, you know, Oh, Claire V. Watkins. That's what I'm thinking of. She is from um, like the California desert. And she was talking about, she had a book come out recently and she had an interview with the LA Times. And she was talking about, you know, I moved back to the desert because I was, you know, doing my like graduate work in the Northeast. And I realized like, I can't write about a place from far away, right? Like I can't Mm. write it all in this elegiac tone looking back on it. Like if I'm going to do the work of like confronting, you know, a modern California and like a modern America and what that really looks like, the idea of like the Hollywood dream. I have to do that up close. Like I have to be able to to get up close and, and see it. And I read that and I was just like, yes, like exactly. You know, like you can't, you can't really effectively, or at least for me, do this work from far away. It has to be, yeah. you have to be right there. And, um, you know, I've spent the last two years working on a novel that is so heavily inspired and set in these places around me. And, you know, I've kind of taken all the different towns I've worked in and like combined them into this fictional area. And so much of that is A, being back in a setting and a place, but B, mm-hmm. having that community around me and realizing like, okay, yeah, I've got that support system. Um, I have other people who, even if they work in a different art form, are doing this with me, you know, right? We're all in it together. We have this community. And I think community and artistry, you know, you can look all the way back to like artist communes. They, they thrive yeah. in rural areas. Um, there are obviously movements that happen in urban cities and art movements. And I think, you know, those are the art movements we most often get to see. But there are also uh, so many art movements um, that are surviving and thriving and have been surviving and thriving in rural communities. And, you know, I just want to be a part of that. Um, speaking of pottery, you know, if you've never heard of Seagrove, Seagrove is a little town right by where Victoria and I teach. And it has, I think last I checked, about 100 people population and like 80 of that town's population are potters. It's known as like the pottery capital of America. And it's right here in kind of like the middle of nowhere, North Carolina. And people come from all over the world to study pottery here. And, you know, I grew up here and didn't even know stuff like that. And Mm -hmm. yeah, it's, you know, I don't even know where I was going with this point, but this idea, like, do you feel that your work, I think, you know, when you think about leaving as an artist, it's like, okay, yes, if I leave and I get to the city, you know, then my work will thrive, right? Because then I'll have this Mm -hmm. community that I never felt like I had here. And and there is a little bit of a fear if you, I mean, I never had that in the city. That was part of my realization of like, oh, this isn't going to work for me because I'm just not finding that community that I even came here for. And I feel like I found that very, very quickly when I came back south. Um, But I don't know if you would say the same of like, there is that fear of, oh, if I go back, you know, I'm going to be back to doing it all on my own. Like, I'm going to be by myself. Mm -hmm. But there is that community. And, you know, if you can find and connect with that, of which we hope to be a bridge to connect any artist and people working in rural areas, do you feel that your work um, kind of improves and shifts from that? Do you feel that, like, do you, what do you feel about making art in community? And do you feel Mm -hmm. that that can thrive in rural areas as opposed to somewhere maybe not rural? Yeah, I, yes, a hundred percent. I, um, 
I mean, I think for any young aspiring artist, especially in high school and college, when, you know, you're absorbing so much information and you're looking kind of for a place to go and really find yourself, um, the easy answer is, you know, always like New York um, Mm -hmm. for visual artists and writers um, and actors, I think, if they're wanting to go into or theater majors instead of, yeah, um, who want to go on the Broadway. Um, But I went... We had a project called the Lawn Sign Project that um, my photography class did. It was part of the Four Freedoms um, Collective, which is something stocked by started by Hank Willis Thomas, which is a fabulous um, program that we'll also link um, down below. Um, but we did our lawn, our lawn sign project through them, and we ended up getting to showcase our work um, in a park in New York. And just talking to local artists, um, and we ended up going to some small uh, museums and workshops and just kind of like observing the background. And I was talking to some of them and I was like, you're so all about you. Because <laughs> I was thinking, I was like, I am finally in a place where this is where artists come to thrive and make a name. Like this is where I'll be this time next year. Um, right, you get that. everything you want and then you're like yeah. – I don't, yeah, it's like I, don't think, I don't think I want this, right? This, this isn't what I thought. I was like, what? This is just, I, I remember I went to this little private, you know, it was this man's um, workshop and he was a photographer as well. Um, he specialized in street photography and I met him and he was just kind of in there talking about his work and his cameras. Um, I was just like, the vibes here are disgusting. <laughs> I was like, his work is amazing. Um, and, you know, I never heard of him until that day, but, you know, he had his own, he was like two stories. That was just all his work. And that's where he lived. And I was like, oh my gosh, this man's like big time. Um, like he seems really important. And I just heard him start talking. And I was like, this is not it. And it was very much like, it felt cutthroat. Um, mm-hmm. I was like, I don't know if this man's always been like this or that's who he had to become to get where he was to own his own little private museum of just his work and having people come to him and being, you know, offered deals in magazines and whatever. But I was like, I, if this is it, I don't want it. But that's all I thought I wanted for years. And then, you know, having that realization. And I loved that little trip to New York with my classmates. That was so fun. But that moment was just in the back of my head. Um, and that happened on our last day there. So the first couple of days were like, all you know, through rose-colored, you know, sunglasses. I was like, this is amazing. This is great. And then I met some artists and I was like, this is not what I thought it was going to be. And there were some artists there who were just amazing and completely down to earth and um, loved to hear what we had to say and really encouraging. But that one that wasn't just, I don't know. I was like, do I want to move and uplift, you know, my life um, from Little Pinehurst, North Carolina and go to a big new city where, I have to change who I am completely maybe to really be heard. I was like, I don't know if I Mm -hmm. can do that. I don't know if I want to do that. Um, And then I went to LA for another conference and a week later, everything got shut down because of COVID and then I moved back home. So it was big whiplash of going to these big two huge hubs of creative people um, and then starting to question of where I wanted to take my life and then moving back home to the place where I never, ever wanted to return to um, was so weird i was very sad 
I was depressed. I was like, I'm not well. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. What, I um, mean, was anybody really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't think anyone was doing well. Because I had this little pre, like I had the start of like a, like a career existential crisis and then, you know, a pandemic hits and then you lose your job and your future jobs and your housing, you know, all in one day. You're like, I am not thriving. <laughs> I am not having a live, laugh, love time. Um, but so when I was going through that, and I was trying to find a new job, you know, I just, I, everyone had time essentially to just kind of like, I was like, okay, everyone's making that whipped coffee. Oh, I made that mm-hmm. every morning. That was kind of my favorite part of quarantine. I never so, made it actually as a, yeah. as a former barista and, and everyone knows I drink like three or four cups of coffee a day. I've never made the whipped coffee. Maybe oh, I should. I did. That well, I made that so much. I did. I, I did I make a lot it. of bread. That was that was my quarantine project. I made a mm. lot of bread, and I I watched the entirety of Below Deck, um, <laughs> and I I I did st- I did start writing what what turned into my novel, which was originally like I, I watched all of normal people cried for like a week. Anyone who's seen it will know what I'm talking about, and then. I was like, I want that, but like rural, rural and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Which I saw someone tweet the other day. They were like, I want Romeo and Juliet in a trailer. Yes. Park. And I'm like, yes. Like that's kind of where I am. Where like, I want these stories that I love, but I want them where they feel applicable to me. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, I want to be able to feel like I can relate to them or I can drive down the road and imagine it happening, you know, in that neighborhood. Yeah. Um, no, I totally And also just that. like getting to see it. You know, one thing that's always crazy to me is the amount of, like, like down here in the South, you know, Atlanta and, you know, parts of North Carolina and even Charleston is getting this way now are like major film and TV hubs, right? Like a lot of what people are going to mm-hmm. watch on TV is actually from right around here. And yet the stories are not like being told, you know, they film the Hunger Games and it's all like in the North Carolina mountains, yeah, that was District 12, you know, based on Appalachia. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. like <laughs> people don't make that. Like, I was just teaching my students that and I was like, did you know that's like filmed right here and it like blew their minds um yeah. and also just that like there are jobs here you know you don't have to you might have to leave your hometown but you don't have to leave the whole state right um yeah there are ways yeah. to be and there I just I think it comes down to like there are different ways to be an artist right and mm-hmm. and I I think social media is helping kind of change this but at least when I was growing up you know with just kind of the rise of the internet and smartphones and you know, I grew up, we didn't have any of that. And then we kind of got it as we were teenagers, but there was only one path I ever got to see to being an artist. And it it did not look like my life and it did not look like me. And especially, you know, I come from a family where there, we're not really artists. We are all storytellers. Um, (laughs) There is a massive, I mean, storytelling, massive tradition here. And, you know, my family comes from a little town up in the North Carolina mountains called Toast. If anybody knows it, it's right outside of Mount Airy. Mount Airy is known for storytelling. Andy Griffith, we've got, we've been storytellers all our lives, but, but nobody had really done it the way that I wanted to do it. And so you just start to believe, oh, oh, it's impossible. Um, and more and more we're, we're seeing that shift because we are seeing, oh, there's, there's jobs here, right? Like there's Mm -hmm. ways to make this work. Um, but (laughs) yeah, I'm with you on 2020. It did not feel, did not feel all that hopeful. Um, and it did not feel very much like, you know, I, I freaked out as well. And I was like, I'm going to go like move to upstate New York. And I, I was going to go work on an organic farm and like live in a school bus. And then I, I kind of fell into the job I'm in now. And um, yeah, life has funny ways of working things out because I, I knew for a long time I wanted to do work in, in the rural Southern art scene. And I had no idea how it was going to yeah. play out. Um, and once 
I found artist year. I then found a artist community, which opened me up to other people in vastly different artistic directions. And it was a thing where no one was trying to outdo each other. Everyone was lifting and supporting each other and making sure that everyone was having these amazing opportunities. And if they saw anything, they would be like, they would ping me and be like, hey, I think you should sign up for this. Or like, hey, you should submit your artwork for this. And I think that's something if I did end up moving, you know, to New York or to any of those major cities, I don't think I would have that experience that I have here of like being connected to the community that I did. So like it, 2020 sucks. It was very cut. Man, my experience was very cutthroat. No, but- and, and I think my work suffered um, as a cause because I was so worried about the perception of it that I wasn't writing anything that felt really yeah. true. And the pieces, you know, I, I did exactly. win some pretty big awards in college and, you know, it was me like writing about my depression and like things that things that did not feel good or or things that were not mm. obviously important, but but I didn't feel good about writing them. Um, it, it felt like I needed to write them to kind of pass through that, but it, it didn't feel like what I wanted my work to be representative of. And I did have an experience where, you know, once I started writing about the South and about my family and about rural communities any attention that I was getting kind of just like slowly went away um, with a lot of people saying, you know, I, I appreciate what you're doing, but I don't, I don't really understand it at all. Um, yeah. And then you do feel very much on your own. So I am right there with you of one thing that's been amazing coming back is like the amount of, you know, within like a year of coming back, I started writing about things that I really valued and that felt really important to me. And I'm very lucky now that like I, I get paid to like write about these things and um, to talk about it and yeah. to be able to kind of, have this newsletter and and just like send a lot of love to publications that have really influenced me, you know, to go back to that idea of like heroes who don't know your heroes. I'm like, I'm not sure any of these editors or publications I've ever worked with are like really going to know what that means to be able to have someone give you like a vote of confidence and say like, no, I think what you're doing is cool and important and I believe in it and we, we want to mm-hmm. share it. Um, and to anybody who's listening and is like, yeah, well, you know, just because I live in like a rural or southern community or Midwest is a very similar issue of like, nobody's going to care about my story. You know, nobody wants to listen to me. You know, that's well and good for you. You were able to like go off and get a degree <laughs> and like just, you know, do all of this and have all these opportunities. And yes, of course, I'm very lucky. I, I don't take any of that for granted. But also like to anybody listening, you know, if no one else tells you this, like, I believe your story has value and, and I believe your story is important and, and has financial and monetary value and, and needs to be told. Like, even, it, you know, I had professors and they were like, I don't care if you don't want to tell this, like, this is important. You have to tell it. And I was like, okay, but this is also unearthing like a lot of trauma to have to yeah. that, right? It was like, are um, you going to pay for my therapy bill? Yeah, are, yeah. Like, are you, you know, you're telling me you have to do this. You have an obligation to do this, but nobody's offering me any support. So if you're listening yeah. and you're thinking, I want to tell these stories, but I just, I don't feel like I can do it alone. You know, that is, that really is what we're here for. Um, we're here to be that support and be that bridge and create that community because I don't think that art, I think art can thrive in isolation. And I, I definitely think yeah. there are periods where you have to isolate yourself, but in general, you know, the life of the artist that we've seen has always been so sad and lonely and miserable. And there's, there's not a lot of hope or happiness or healing or joy there. And art just as much as a way to like process pain and suffering and trauma of which it is a great tool for can also be a bridge to hope and healing and joy and happiness. Mm -hmm. And you can have a beautiful life and be an artist and we don't get to see that much. And um, I think the places I found that most have actually been in rural artistry and rural communities. And 
those are the stories I'm interested in telling. Um, because I want to believe that like, yeah, I can use my, my work and my art as a way to create empathy and to showcase joy and to talk about like the radical power of, you know, queer love and acceptance and healing and identity and, and home and really figuring out what that means. Um, and I think that's beautiful. Yeah. No, it, it I mean, a hundred percent is, um, I mean, and I guess, I guess while we're talking about things we believe in, I'm going to turn it back on you. <laughs> Spencer George. <laughs> oh, Victoria's stealing it. Victoria's stealing my question. <laughs> Well, let me ask you. Let me ask you last time. So now I want to ask you. (laughs) Let me ask you first, and then we'll turn it back to you because I am technically interviewing you here. So, one thing that we have is a tradition on the Good Book Podcast, and anybody who comes on will will be asked this question. Um, And I think this is very important for Good Folk and for the work that we do. But you know, I, I invite you to take this as you will, and if you're listening, you know, answer this in the comments. You know, tell us what you think about it. But. I ask every podcast guest that we have on here, you know, what do you believe in? Um, Whether that is, what do you believe in for your work? What do you believe in for this place, for the the world, for the future? Or you could take it very literally, you know, like literally, what do you believe in? But Victoria, I ask you, what do you, what do you believe in? (laughs) I believe in um, humanity. That was the first thing that popped into my question when you asked me, you know, gave me a heads up. He was like, hey, this is what I want to do at the end of everything. And you gave me, you said, what do you believe in? Um, I did. Victoria got a little bit of a heads up on this question. I did. (laughs) And now you all are getting a heads up if you're on the podcast next. So there, here you go. This is your heads up. Yeah. It was just when, when you said like, that's what you would want to do. And then you said, well, you know, I would just ask, what did you believe in? The first thing that popped in my head is humanity. Um, And as dark and scary and unknown as these times are, you know, in our state, in our country and across the world, just with a vast majority of things, I think that I think we have to lean on each other. Um, I think community is so deeply important within that and finding who you can trust and who you can lean on and who's going to give you support. Um, And that all just kind of trickles down to like the bigger word of humanity. I think we are just all think we're all great i think we're all neat people um i think we're all good folk we and are i are all believe good folk you know that that's our tagline fine i know we are all if good you're folk. a person existing in the world you're good folk whether you know it or not you know yeah yeah i think just people finding who they are i think that story and that journey is always beautiful and amazing um and i think leaning on each other during times of crisis um and the unknown i think is when you really see um, huge love in the community that you're a part of. Um, so yeah, I just, I believe we're all good folk. I believe in humanity. I believe in the people. So. And that's why you're on the That's team. cheesy, but it's true. Yeah. No, that's, um, you know, I, I know technically you asked me first, so that that's pretty much my answer as well to this. Um, I, if it's hard, if you know me now, this might seem hard to believe, but believe it or not, I used to be the biggest, most pessimistic person ever. I just was fully convinced that there was no good in the world and I was meant to like be a brooding, suffering artist. And I really lived that life for a very long time. You know, I always tell people, if you knew me before I was 21, you knew a very different version of me. Um, Mm. And, and, you know, this is an episode for another podcast, but I went through a lot um, in college and kind of in my early 20s. And I really had to like take a step back and think about what do I believe in in life and what do I value? And that's when I got into I was working in testimony work um, in human rights organizations. I was thinking a lot about, you know, empathy and the South and 
the kind of work that I really wanted to do. And I remember I just kept hearing the phrase in my head, like, I really do believe that people are good. And it, it felt really radical to say that out loud, especially to like a group of, you know, very serious New York, like Ivy League students, you know, to say, I really do believe that just, just people are good, right? Like that it's a fundamental core mm-hmm. philosophy in my life. And people are like, no, there's bad people everywhere. And I was like, well, there are people who go wrong. But there's good people right? there too. Yeah. But there's good people there too. And and we have to believe that. Like I have to approach, you know, it got for it really got for me at the point of like, I have to approach my life and my connections and my interactions mm-hmm. with this core belief that people are good and they're not going to hurt me because I believe mm-hmm. the opposite for so long. And I, I would approach every interaction with, oh, they're they're gonna hurt me. They're that I'm this is bad. This is gonna end badly. And I closed myself off to so much of what makes life worth living because of mm-hmm. that, right? So mm-hmm. it is very radical to say that like you believe in humanity and you believe in goodness. And I don't think it should be. Um, I think that, you know, joy and hope are really the most like radical forms of resistance we have. And also some of the most difficult because it is really, really hard to show up in interactions and to show up in the world and say, you know, I'm going to believe that you have good intentions. Um, so much of the yeah. world just constantly wants to prove us wrong on that. So I think it becomes really, really radical to say that of like, yeah, I believe in humanity. Um, and, you know, our little tagline, you know, our website now and our social media and our email has always been good folks only. And we like to think we're, you know, we're, we're a club that's not really so secret, but, you know, it, in order to be good folk, our, our only qualification is really, you got to commit to like doing the work of, you know, believing people are good. It's not to yeah. say that people don't go wrong. It's not to say that bad things don't happen in the world, but, you know, we're here for the good folks. Um, and we're here for the people who want to, do something differently and, yes. and to do it, to do it better and to really connect with each other and share that idea of hope and healing and joy and love. And that's, that's our community. So if that sounds like you, we're glad to have you here and we hope you will join us. Um, yes, we, come join. we have this we're regular fine. podcast. This will be twice monthly is the aim. Um, we also still have our newsletter that will continue to run through Substack. You will get that from me. <laughs> that will stay with me and my thoughts and ramblings and our resource roundups. Um, that will be weekly. More than that, if you join us as a paying subscriber, although we're trying to keep everything as free as possible, you just get some extra perks. Um, we will also, in the next few weeks, be announcing some exciting information about virtual free writing workshops um, to help you kind of get those tools to tell your stories. We're going to be trying to host some community pop-up events if you are local to the Raleigh-Durham, Moore County area. Stay tuned for that. We would love to get to meet some of you all in person. If you are interested in kind of setting up some of those things in your own community, even if you're not from there, you know, please email us, reach out to us. Um, We have cars. We are available. We are willing to travel. You know, we want to connect with as many people as possible. And if you are interested in being on the podcast, you know somebody who's interested in being on the podcast have someone who you just love their work, you want us to check them out, you can email us. We are goodfolksonly at gmail.com. Um, you can also find us again at goodfolksonly.org. That is our Twitter and TikTok handle as well. So please follow us there. We're just really, I'm, I, I mean, I think I speak for both of us, but I'm, I'm just really excited for this new era. This is what I wanted to have with Good Folk all along. Um, and I appreciate everyone who has been here since day one, kind of following along to my ramblings on empathy and rurality in the South. And um, we're not going anywhere. So we're, we're going to be here doing some really cool things. And, and we hope you will join us. Victoria, if you yes. have anything you would like to add to that, feel free. No, I think you tied everything up in a nice little cute bow. Um, no, you said essentially everything. They know where to find us. They know what to do. 
you know, we'll be here. Yes. Yeah, we will be here. Um, again, we're goodfolksonly.org. Substack is just goodfolk.substack. Um, so you can find and subscribe to everything there. Follow us on Twitter. That's probably where we're most active. And yeah, please let us know like in the comments, you know, what do you believe in? What are you interested in? What do you want to hear? You know, um, we're trying to keep a nice mix of bridging that community, but also, you know, rural studies and rural studies education. Um, we both have a lot of work in that and that is what I'm getting a master's degree in. So I would love to talk more about it. Um, <laughs> and if you, if there's something that you're like, I just don't understand this, or I've always wanted to hear more about it, you know, neither of us are, we're not afraid of tackling some bigger complex issues. No. So please let us know what you're interested in and yeah, let us know how you feel about this new era of good folk. We are excited to have you here. We know if you are here and you are listening, you are good folk and all of us are already good folk. So please share us with your friends. Um, share the podcast, tune in, and stay tuned for a lot of new exciting things. We've got a lot of stuff. I know we say this all the time, um, and it's nice, it's nice to say we now and not just <laughs> me, but you know, we, we are working on a lot of things behind the scenes. So I, tell, I always write, I'm like, you know, stay tuned, but like really do stay tuned because um, we've got a lot of exciting stuff coming up. Yes. And with that, I think I will bid everybody farewell. And thank you so much for listening to our very first podcast and we will see you next time yeah bye guys <laughs>